Hello, and welcome to another episode of After Class, a medical ethics podcast. We aren't philosophers, we aren't ethicists, we aren't even doctors. We are a group of medical students trying to find our way in this crazy world of medicine. This podcast is run by a group of medical students at Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. While there are a lot of sources of information out there for, from literature to the media, we hope to be a casual, free-form space to have some open, honest, and thought-provoking conversation. All views expressed on this podcast are personal to the participants. They are not the views of Thomas Jefferson University or any of its controlled affiliates. many facts of life. The sky is blue, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, chocolate ice cream is far superior to vanilla. There are also facts about ourselves, the most fundamental being we all are born and one day we all will die. My name is Grace and I'm a co-creator of After Class. I'm pleased to introduce To the End, Topics in End-of-Life Care, a six-part mini-series that focuses on ethical questions surrounding the decisions we make at the end of life. I believe issues on this topic are critically important to understand, whether you're a healthcare provider, student, patient, or citizen. Historically, discussing end-of-life care has been a challenging subject for patients and providers alike. Even starting the conversation may be daunting. I wanted to start this mini-series to open the door on these important topics and to make people more comfortable and more knowledgeable about them. Please note, by no means am I offering medical advice or guidance. This mini-series is purely conversational, and any medical decisions should be made between the patient and their healthcare provider. Topics will range from issues in patient autonomy and advanced planning, to new ideas, such as ethical grand rounds as part of a patient's care plan. Episodes will cover the fine details of mechanical and nutritional life support, how to discuss end-of-life care with families, and hopefully give you a look into the complicated questions that come up at the end of life. Additionally, we may have guest speakers on the mini-series to discuss topics they are experts in. Without further ado, I am pleased to have Dr. Diane Ekrit joining me for the mini-series. Thank you so much, Grace. My name is Diane Eckert, and I am a full-time faculty member at Thomas Jefferson University, but I uh, have a PhD in healthcare ethics and, and help with the um, ethical deliberation in ethical analysis with some case studies that arise in ethics consults throughout the country. I also teach ethics across the curriculum in the undergraduate nursing program and have launched um, a new nursing ethics semester course in the fall of 2020. I'm happy to be here and it's exciting to be part of this uh, mini series. For today's first episode, we want to introduce the topic of patient autonomy, a fundamental cornerstone necessary for medical decision-making, whether at the beginning or end of life. 
Tom Bouchamp and James Childress are professors of philosophy at Georgetown University and religion at the University of Pennsylvania, respectively. Together, they authored Principles of Biomedical Ethics, which offers the following definition for patient autonomy. Autonomy requires liberty, as defined as independence from controlling influences, and agency, as defined as the capacity for intentional action. Furthermore, they note that liberty can be undermined by coercion, persuasion, and manipulation, such that expressing respect, respect for patients' autonomy means acknowledging that patients who have decision-making capacity have the right to make decisions regarding their care, even when their decisions contradict their clinician's recommendations. Furthermore, the American Medical Association includes informed consent as a necessary component of patient autonomy. In medical decision-making, they state that informed consent requires physicians to respect patient, patients' autonomy by giving them the information needed to understand the risks and benefits of a proposed intervention, as well as the reasonable alternatives, including no intervention, so that they may make independent decisions. Today I have with me Dr. Ekrit, as well as two other co-founders of the Medical Ethics uh, Podcast, Holly and Michael. Um, and I wanted to begin our discussion today uh, just with everyone's sort of first impression of these two separate definitions of patient autonomy. Um, what do they get right and what might they be lacking? Um, do you think there might be better alternatives? Um, is there anything that like stood out to you uh, just based on your first initial impressions? Um, so what strikes me as you were reading, especially the first one there, is just how American that sounds in many ways. It sounds almost like we're talking about something very patriotic. We're talking about like liberty and, uh, and freedom. I don't know, that, that, it's a joke, I'm just kidding. But uh, so was something that struck me as, as we, you were reading that there. Um, another thing, just kind of random thoughts here, but um, again, in, in the Childress Beauchamp uh, definition there, um, the, the line about how liberty can be undermined by coercion, persuasion, and manipulation, um, just popped in my head that disease is a pretty big persuader and, you know, manipulator when somebody is, is sick, um, you know, they're, they're clearly under um, a sort of influence of the disease itself. Um, and, uh, you know, just acknowledging that that is a, a strong um, persuasive force on a patient um, as well. What stood out to me when you were talking about those definitions was the idea of respect. Um, and I think that was something that really underpins like all the different uh, aspects of autonomy, having respect for patients and understanding that they have this decision-making capacity regardless of what their literacy levels may be in terms of, you know, healthcare uh, details like side effects or interventions that are necessary. And I think when you start off on a platform of respect, you really get to meet the patient as a person and understand that their care is something that you're doing together. And I think um, I really like that idea of defining autonomy with a basis of respect. Yeah, and also another point that just popped up as well was, uh, you know, the first definition is a lot about like, you know, freedom from manipulation, persuasion, coercion, and stuff like that, but also 
um, that, that term that you just said, Haley, respect, um, I feel like that comes in a lot more with the AMA definition, um, you know, which, which stresses the um, sort of the act of the physicians respecting their autonomy by giving information um, to the patient and respecting them um, in that way of kind of enabling them, you know, kind of a freedom to rather than a freedom from, you know, you don't want to unfairly persuade a patient and that's freedom. So that patient is free from your persuasion, but also, you know, um, if they are free to act with, you know, a fully informed, um, you know, uh, mind or, or conscience or, or whatever word you prefer to use there. Michael and Heli, I agree with both of your assessments in response to the definitions. And what is always interesting to me with the perceived liberty that sounds so American in our um, autonomous decision of individualism, when we look at autonomy in healthcare and when we look at decisions that patients have to make under high amounts of stress when a disease takes over their, their life, so to speak, um, the whole autonomous decision-making process is actually not individual as much as it is relational. When, when you both spoke about the importance of respect and providing information so that a patient didn't feel coerced, that person still isn't making decisions autonomously alone. They are making those decisions in relationship. Um, and so when physicians provide the respect of patients' autonomous decision-making, it's still um, a process that's so less individualistic than many perceive that principle of autonomy to be. Not only do patients make their decisions dependent upon information their physicians and care providers educate them with, but many times we forget the relational aspect of what illness causes for individuals within their community and their home um, environments. Uh, so to me, I like the term relational autonomy, um, but, but Beecham and Childress do not use that terminology. Yeah, I completely agree with you guys. I feel like, you know, when I found this particular definition and when I was kind of reading through it, it did feel incredibly um, individualistic, incredibly American. And I think the point that you make, Dr. Recruit, about um, uh, sort of relational autonomy and how uh, decisions in healthcare are very, very relational between that of uh, the patient and, and their provider versus, or the patient and their family members um, uh, is a much more encompassing and accurate description of what it means to be a, uh, an autonomous patient um, as opposed to this idea of it being a going solo, trying to make your decision on your own without any, any outside influences. The curious or nature that I find with that, Grace, is even in normal life, in this country, we attribute our own successes on an individualistic type of a nature. But in reality, we, we all have the lives and the successes that we have in relationship. And so autonomy is only as good as the community that we surround ourselves in. So perhaps um, when you make that point, one thing I think, one thing that I think could be kind of an interesting way to think about healthcare and healthcare, healthcare um, I guess you could say maybe equity 
is if if we view patient autonomy as partially defined by the relationships that the patient has, um, who their family is, who their provider is, and so on, um, would one measure of reaching healthcare healthcare equity um, be making sure that each patient has those relationships available to them or some semblance of those relationships so that they can make informed decisions for themselves? Um, you know, because I imagine many patients come from different backgrounds and may or may not have established relationships when they become ill. Um, it's uh, kind of an interesting idea to, to chew on. I, I agree. And when we look at healthcare disparities, it, it even becomes more interesting. And how do we as healthcare providers promote autonomy, but promote it in a more holistic fashion by incorporating access to resources and access to support systems? Yeah, I feel like um, just listening to you guys um, back and forth there, um, and sort of a lot of what we've been talking about so far, just this, I, the conventional idea of what autonomy means in maybe, you know, just, you know, common um, everyday conversations, you know, you think of autonomy as, you know, I'm just, you know, like my, myself, you know, I'm an individual, you know, kind of stressing the hyper individualism that we touched on several times here, um, that I feel like we've kind of lost what that authentically means, just like, obviously here, you know, we're talking about like the relationships that people have and how you know, autonomy, it's, it's, in, it's sort of just baked into the community or interrelational aspects of, of our lives, but sort of just how we've in common discussions. And I, I, at least in my perception that, you know, pervades, you know, medicine as a whole, at least the medical school side um, of how we think about what that term autonomy means. And just sort of how it's, it's I just sort of like lamenting just the, the sort of the tragic loss of the meaning of that word you know, autonomy um, or freedom or whatever, whatever you, um, you know, I feel like those are two rather interchangeable words. Um, you know, it makes me think of, you know, uh, you know, the work of like uh, Alistair McIntyre uh, and his whole, his book uh, After Virtue, where he talks pretty much, you know, all about how we've lost the meaning of these words. Um, and it just kind of disservices um, everyone, you know, throughout our society. And in this case, it would be patients, people who are most, you know, they're ill, they're physically ill, you know, they're at risk. Um, you know, they are the ones who kind of bear the brunt of that loss, um, you know, at least in theory. Um, it just seems sort of, sort of a, uh, just more of like lamenting the, the loss of the meaning of that word. And I think in the historical context of the development of autonomy as being one of those healthcare ethical principles, the idea was to ensure the voice of the patient because so many voices in, in medical historical past were maybe not respected, like Helly mentioned, and therefore there is a paternalistic nature of the physician indicating the trajectory of care that patients should receive given a certain diagnosis. So you're, you're right, Michael, I think the historical context of the term to a certain degree has been lost in the nature where in not so recent of a past, many patients were, were not even notified about their disease diagnosis or the, the interventions that could be implemented and patients didn't have a choice or a say or a voice 
in that care. So we have come a long way in making sure that the patient's autonomous values, wishes, desires are, are heard. And I think that might be um, the point of the principle of autonomy so that we don't lose the individual to what a provider would deem as being the best intervention. Yeah, I completely agree, Dr. Ekrit. And um, I, I, I think given um, the history of medicine in the United States, uh, even recent history, um, I, where patients didn't have a strong say in their in the direction of their health care or in their treatment plans um, and were essentially, uh, you know, disregarded by physicians or healthcare provider providers. I think that history has sort of pushed us towards patient autonomy as being um, a key cornerstone of medicine where it rightfully ought to be. Um, but unfortunately, I, I think perhaps our American culture or philosophy uh, has, has perhaps either carried it a little too far um, to the point that it, it again describes perhaps the idea of a relational autonomy as opposed to this very individualistic autonomy. So I do think the idea of patient autonomy was born from a good place um, and should certainly remain a, a, a key component of, you know, American healthcare philosophy, if you will. Um, but it's just, I, I agree, this definition does seem to take it just slightly, almost too individualistic. Um, so... So um, uh, now that we have everyone's initial reactions, um, I guess I kind of wanted to discuss, uh, well, there's a, there's a couple of things that we could go into that I, I thought could be interesting. We'll start with, um, uh, we also have this idea of informed consent. Um, we've discussed patient autonomy at uh, pretty good length and um, informed consent is also sort of a critical uh, idea in that you know, uh, you can have patient autonomy, you can have relational autonomy um, to make decisions, but I feel as oftentimes your decisions are only as good as the information that you have at hand. Um, and so maybe we just want to uh, discuss what it means to give conform informed consent and sort of um, how, I believe it's more falls on the providers, how to frame informed consent in a way that is clear and uh, I guess, accessible to your patients um, because we wouldn't want them making decisions without having a full understanding of what is important to them and what they should be concerned with. Um, you know, my personal opinions regarding conform informed consent, it's, it's interesting because obviously for any procedure, there's, you know, it's fairly standardized where, um, the patient needs to be completely informed about the risks and benefits of a procedure before uh, agreeing to it. Um, uh, but I also believe that there's historically been situations where um, perhaps you don't necessarily want to give uh, the patient a full picture of, of uh, what's going on. Allow me to clarify before this goes too far. Um, for instance, uh, if you are ordering a, um, uh, 
some kind of imaging to rule out certain pathologies. Uh, suppose you see you see a mass or something on a patient's um, on one uh, result or something suggestive of a mass. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, introduce anxiety for that patient by. Um, um, you know, su suggesting it could be cancer that, you know, per of course I could be on your differential, but uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to uh, stress out the patient. Um, and so perhaps you might withhold certain information expl and explain you want to engage in further testing um, to help to diagnose what is uh, what that mass is. But you wouldn't explicitly say, well, one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I think it could be cancer. Because... Um, uh, well, I guess that sort of runs into a bit of a blurry line of how much information do you give to a patient in their in their medical decision making um, without introducing unnecessary anxiety or stress for your patient. Um, yeah, I feel like I just informed consent seems so foreign to me, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, probably all of us, um, you know, uh, preclinical medical students. Um, you know, obviously, we could have been patients and stuff, you know. Uh, of course, already, but from the at least from the you know physician provider side, um, as you were talking about, that, I was like, informed consent. When I think of informed consent, I just think of like the consent forms you read for like research and stuff, <laughs> like you know, and yeah. uh, just how uh, sort of technical and uh, jargony wordy that those can be at times, and um, you know, a lot of times you start reading them to you know a participant in your study or whatever, and they're just like. <laughs> okay, like fine, whatever, like they don't really want to read or, or like there's all this fine print and everything. Um, obviously that's not yeah. exactly what we're talking about here. You know, when we're talking about informing inside of a, of a procedure or a, a treatment plan, but um, because I, I, I would be interested to hear what, um, you know, Dr. Egret has to say, just because it seems like a little foreign to me right now. Yeah, no, and I agree as preclinical students, it seems a little, amorphous if you will just kind of you know my experience again as you said michael with informed consent is like getting consent form signed but i think in my opinion at least i feel it's a little bit of a disservice to patients to just have them sign a consent form and that be that without providing something that's a bit more um easier to understand in, in layman's terms for the patient um so so yeah, I definitely agree. I was I was recently part of a conversation with a couple of doctors who were um, talking about kind of similar issues, and they mentioned how what the concerns of doctors are uh, and what the concerns of patients are are kind of discrepant. Uh, this was in the context of what a patient considers to be a complication of a surgery versus what doctors consider a complication, and I think there was some sort of survey administered where um, obviously all the clinicians would describe infection to be a bad complication of a surgery, while the percent for patients was much lower. For some reason, people thought infection would be something that just comes with it, while patients rated like lack of pain relief to be a complication, while, you know, doctors uh, did not rate that as high because that's just something that comes with it. So it just, I just remembered that conversation because it showed me how what we view with um, our type of background to be um, complications or certain things that come with procedures uh, to be different from what the patient sees. So when a patient is just, you know, signing off some forms, what's concerning in their mind and what's concerning in the minds of doctors could be wildly discrepant. And I think 
I'm, I'm not sure how to resolve that, but I think part of it includes kind of thinking from the, you know, viewpoint of someone outside of healthcare and what concerns them and what is something that, you know, worries them about undergoing some type of procedure. So that's just something that kind of came to mind that I had never experienced before. I, I think everyone brings up really, really um, important and rational um, discussions related to the complexity of informed consent. Because initially, when we when we speak of informed consent, we think that it should be a straightforward kind of technical exercise, so to speak, like Michael said. Yet, there's so many different elements of informed consent. And then, Holly, I think you bring out the complications regarding patient understanding versus physician perceived disclosure. And so what a physician states is oftentimes not what a patient hears. And that I'm gonna talk about some of the specific requirements for informed consent and a little bit about my experience as an ICU nurse. And um, I, I worked a lot in recovery room and spoke, you know, co-signed a lot of consents with physicians um, up to 30 years ago, and we've come a long way with with how we've improved the process of informed consent from when I first became a nurse, um, where we used to just kind of give someone a form and say, we're going to do this surgery, and here's your signature to consent for doing it. We never really provided a lot more information than that. Maybe the information was provided in an outpatient setting before they came into the hospital, but in the hospital, it was um, very very technical, just here's the paper and please sign. Um, so I think we have a lot more understanding because of research, the understanding or the misunderstandings that patients have. Um, so one of the first requirements for informed consent was for physicians to provide full disclosure of information. Um, and what had happened a lot with uh, paternalistic like physician protections in a patient's best interest might have um, in, in, in the past might have failed to fully disclose a diagnosis or information about an intervention. Whereas now I think a lot of people are aware that the full disclosure of the information should, should be provided. But like Grace spoke of, there's some hesitation because you also have the well-being of your patient in mind and a physician wouldn't want to um, worry patients too much, especially if it's a diagnosis that was determinate upon test results. Um, from my experience, currently, a lot of physicians provide too much information to patients that do scare the patients um, prior to, to examination. So. I think Grace was trying to kind of balance that initiation of excessive worry or anxiety for patients. So what does full disclosure really mean? And I think that as you proceed in your education and your practice, that that ability and that art of providing disclosure to individualistic circumstances for patients is going to be something that you develop over time. Um, another area of informed consent would be to make sure that we provide enough information for patients so that they understand the nature of the test or the intervention or the surgery or the procedures and that patients understand the benefits, the risks and potential actual consequences of the treatment. And we all know 
that just providing those three elements of informed consent takes a lot longer of a time period than we are usually provided in clinical practice in sitting down and having the conversations with patients. Um, so like Kelly had said, I think it's important then after these procedures and disclosures are provided for patients is to ask patients if they could repeat back their understanding of the procedure that was recommended. I think I was hoping for a, additional comment from any of you in relation to how difficult it is to provide full disclosure, provide the nature, the, um, to provide the patient with the nature of the test or treatment intervention and how difficult it is to, to really talk about benefits, risks, and potential actual consequences from interventions. And we didn't even talk about also providing patient with alternative options for treatment and interventions. And in my clinical practice, I think that I have seen that rarely completed, mm -hmm. but I think it was the nature of working in ICU that we didn't really always have time to talk about an alternate test or treatment intervention because it was kind of an emergency test or treatment intervention um, and, and how difficult it is to assess patient understanding. And oftentimes because of the nature of disease and emergencies related to health, patients will sign consent without fully understanding uh, the risks or the benefits because of the nature of our neurological functioning that when we're under stress, our prefrontal cortex doesn't register all that information that the doctor is telling us. And therefore, how much of the informed consent process in at least an emergency situation is difficult for patients to digest and comprehend. Yeah, just um, I wanted to give some feedback uh, on that, Dr. Ekrit. Um, I, I think uh, going to your earlier point or your, your, your point that you made about um, the challenges of providing clear and, and um, you know, a, a full picture of, of informed consent for a patient coming from a healthcare provider, I think that can be very challenging because in the sense that, you know, healthcare providers go through years and years of schooling. And of course, I, I'm of the opinion that, you know, if you truly understand something, you should be able to explain it well. Um, but I agree that, like, to an extent, um, it can be challenging to uh, provide informed consent to patients if uh, you're using language that's completely foreign to them. Um, and so uh, I think that, you know, that in and of itself can be a bit of a barrier and something that physicians really need to keep in mind is that um, the terminology that you're using and the descriptions that you're using um, need to be very carefully thought about when giving informed consent such that it's, you know, not so technical as just as if you're reading a reading a uh, informed consent sheet, essentially, because I feel like many providers physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, anyone um, can become very technical in their explanations um, because that's how we've come to understand it. Whereas our patients don't have any background in this and it's not their day-to-day -day work that they're dealing with. This is something com completely new and foreign to them. And then going off of um, talking about different uh, informed consent about different options, I completely agree that that's not something that really gets discussed. So it's kind of the patient is provided with this one 
um, option for them. And maybe there's talk about maybe not doing it and the risks for that. But generally speaking, I feel like patients don't uh, have the opportunity, time or background knowledge to investigate other options available to them. Um, and so I think that can certainly be um, a challenge in and of itself as well. One of the difficulties too is, uh, you know, you were talking about how we were just like, we use all this technical language and we are only, we're only, you know, a year and a half out of, you know, or into a medical career life, whatever, you know, we remember how difficult the learning the language of medicine is and how precisely it, it is li- literally an entirely different language. And like, you know, I remember doing, you know, chart reviews in college and just trying just like Googling every other word to figure out what it mm-hmm. means. And that's like so much of the, you know, maybe first year of medical school even. And so we're, we're, we put in this weird position where we spend so much time learning, you know, as, you know, a physician or, you know, any other medical, you know, clinician where we just learn this terminology. And it's, you know, obviously there's a point to it. You know, it's, it's meant to be more precise and descriptive and, and those are all good things, but you then put in a weird position where you, you've existed in this vocabulary that is like, you know, med speak or whatever, and you have to unlearn that to explain it to a patient but in your mind, you're thinking of all, you know, those technical words and the, you know, technical diagnoses and, you know, whatever, we're, uh, whatever, what have you. So we're just put in like a very odd position. And I like, again, like, I don't, I don't, I think that those, those terms are good because they are precise and that's really important in medicine to be precise for what you're speaking about. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a very hard position to be in. Uh, you know, like I remember uh, listening to a friend trying to explain to a standardized patient uh, what, um, what was it, uh, you know, high blood pressure and why they were going to be on like a diuretic. And he was just like, oh, well, like you have, you need to, you know, die, you have too much fluid in your, in your body or your, your you know, circulation. And then the standardized patient was like, you mean I have too much blood? Like, what do you, like, like that's a sensible question. Like, mm-hmm that's really weird. Like, why would you be, need to, you know, diurese someone when they have like, you know, high blood pressure, you know, from a, like, from a lay perspective. And it's like, that's, that seems so confusing to somebody. And also just, how do you explain that? How do you be like, well, like, no, you don't have too much blood, but like, it's just like, you take some off for like, to really like, you know, the cardiac load or whatever you want to say. I agree, it's Michael. Just, it's really weird. And I think there's almost this tension, if you will, of, to one extent, there's almost like a tension between trying to put this information in a, a way that your patient will understand without sac- on the other end of it, without sacrificing accuracy of the information. You know, I, I think it's certainly very possible for um, patients to, uh, you know, for us as clinicians to, clinicians to um, inform our patients, give them informed consent in a way that they can understand. But I often wonder how much are you sacrificing accuracy when you do that? Because I often feel like I've met patients who, or people in my life who they say, you know, when they recollect what they were told by doctors, um, it's very, it's, it's more straightforward forward and easy, easy for them to understand, but it's not entirely accurate either. Uh, one example that comes to mind is, you know, a patient who thinks that he, uh, he or she um, uh, had, uh, you know, a certain type of stroke. And in reality, um, it was, it was a bit more complicated than that. And so it's kind of, 
I find that very interesting and it kind of a bit of a tightrope walk as um, as uh, clinicians in, in providing proper informed consent, but without giving making it almost inaccurate. I do think that with the advent of the internet and personal computers, uh, when I first started practicing, patients relied on our education to provide them with the information they needed to know about a disease state or surgery. Today, we have kind of the opposite um, difficulty where then patients will take home discharge teachings and maybe ask a doctor if they want to think about something. And then they start looking everything up on the internet. And then you're trying to explain, Michael, um, processes and surgeries and procedures in, in patients that are gaining information that might not also be accurate, kind of achieved anywhere with their Google searches. Um, and, and in other instances, it improves patient education because if someone is very diligent, then they can actually go out there and educate themselves and then they can learn about alternate treatments and maybe ask us questions about treatments that we didn't prevent, present to the patient, um, maybe because they aren't warranted, maybe because they're, they have a high risk benefit ratio. Um, but I found myself as the years have progressed needing to answer a lot more complex questions from patient and patient family members when they come back after the initial introduction of an informed consent process for a certain disease or treatment intervention or surgery. Um, and, and that was challenging in the beginning because we need to be abreast, so to speak, in knowing what is out there and what patients might see in regard to their their healthcare needs that maybe we didn't pre present as a provider. And for a physician, I can only imagine um, how complex that could become um, in, in their recommendations for treatment for their patients. Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a dichotomy between um, meeting your patient where they are in terms of their literacy level, as well as making sure that they accurately understand what's, what's really going on with them. And it kind of prompted me to think more about trust and, you know, having this trust in your physician that they're going to tell you uh, exactly what is going on with your care without, you know, patronizing you or without keeping you in the dark about things, um, as well as just understanding that the science is there for you. And just increasingly in the past few years, I've been seeing, uh, and I think we've all been noticing this growing distrust for the information that's out there. And I think technology does play a bit of a role in it because uh, I, I personally think it's definitely very positive that we have so much access to information, but it's also opened up this hole for misinformation, which has kind of bred this mistrust for science and doctors. And it, it really makes it hard to come, come through to a person and uh, really have them believe in you and have that trust in you that you are going to do the right thing for them and you're going to include them in that process. And I think uh, lately I've seen that be a very big challenge for physicians, just even gaining patients' trust. The trust transparency dilemma, right? That's so important. Mm -hmm. I agree. Like even, um, Helly, like even what you just said just made me think about like the whole COVID situation of, you know, if people can't even agree on the same facts about 
um, the, you know, the disease at hand or the issue at hand, you know, for example, COVID, then how in the world can, can we have a conversation to build trust and move forward with a treatment plan? Um, it's, it's mm -hmm. certainly a major challenge of our times. Definitely. And I think, you know, I, we're a lot more privy to the healthcare perspective. And during this past year, uh, for healthcare providers who are dealing with COVID patients, it's so incredibly frustrating and, and just deeply difficult to see people literally dying and having um, end of like life experiences without the type of love and support that normally occurs. And then also having to face people who have trouble believing this is a reality when it is very much a reality for so many of our healthcare workers. Um, so I, I'm aware of that challenge, but I cannot imagine how that is and how to potentially even start building that trust up again to have a more robust system for delivering health. Yeah, I mean, this has clearly been a, you know, it's not a new mm -hmm phenomenon of the lack of trust in, in a medical community. Um, but clearly, you know, COVID was a, you know, a stress test for, for that in many ways. And um, the, obviously everyone has their own theories, you know, why, why, why do people not trust doctors? Why do people not trust at the end of the healthcare system? But, um, you know, it, it, from, from what I gather, it seems that a lot of people don't trust the kind of increasingly bureaucratic nature of medicine. You know, they, you know, Clearly, there's a lot of, you know, cultural divisions and um, and I understand, you know, I understand it and we, I think we all would, you know, you see these giant healthcare, um, you know, corporations really, you know, for lack of a better term and, you know, people don't, people will trust you and you dock around the corner or whatever, but, you know, when medicine isn't, you know, that person, when medicine is, you know, whatever giant, you know, conglomerate you know, healthcare system that, you know, runs your, your area and you only have like, you know, getting back to autonomy, maybe you only have one option. You can only go to, you know, hospital system X, you know, it's, it's easier to understand why people might like feel separated and isolated from, you know, from doctors and from the healthcare system in general. Um, and just, I feel like, you know, in, you know, decades leading up to this, um, you know, this stress test, as you know, I, I said, you know, it's, I feel like approaching a lot of things with humility helps and understanding, you know, like people have, people have good reasons to be skeptical of healthcare, not like, not like, I'm not like saying, you know, any of those things where we're talking about COVID, but just like, like I said, you know, the corporate nature of healthcare now, um, you know, I think all of us are skeptical of certain things, you know, and I think it's healthy to be skeptical, but as the individual doctor, it's like, you want to connect with your patient, you want them to trust you. And I feel like the best, and that's the best thing for having their trust in healthcare in general is you. And the best way to do that, I feel like is approaching these concerns with humility, um, you know, and I feel like that's what, you know, we've learned that in many ways as well for various you know, problems of, you know, say people who don't believe in vaccines, you know, well, the best way is to approach that in a humble way, not to be like, oh, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And listen to me. It's like, oh, like, you know, I understand your concerns, but here's how I see it. You know, like, will you let me tell you about it? Um, I think that's just like a much, a thing that we all have to learn now. I all suppose. of um, 
all especially of you seeing wore my heart, Michael. You, all of your responses, <laughs> your genuine response for care and warmth and humility and respect for the patient is at the heart of autonomy. I think it's at the heart of the principle of informed consent, that if all physicians and healthcare providers utilize the same elements of respect and humility and meeting patients where they are, like Grace said earlier, I think that that will be, those will be the beneficial elements that build the trust and build the respect in the healthcare profession once again. And I'm not, I'm not convinced it's gone. Um, I'm convinced that it's still there. Um, and the hope of the future with all of your education and views towards ethics and your interest in ethics is, is truth of that, of that being a promising future. Well, thank you, Dr. Eager. That's really, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Very nice. Nice to hear. Well, and, we, and we are beyond happy to have you as our as a leader for us in, in understanding healthcare ethics. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. And it's a privilege to have this discussion with all of you. That's it for today's episode on patient autonomy and informed consent. Join us next time when we'll be discussing conversations in advanced planning with patients and their families. We'll cover the difference between an advanced directive versus a will and dive into newer modalities for discussing advanced planning, such as a medical order for life-sustaining treatment. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.